Good morning, everyone. Uh, it is a pleasure to be with you all, as always. Uh, please don't mind me if there's a moment or two where I have to send Tabby along to class or something. I am solo parenting this weekend, uh, so I appreciate your patience. Uh, it is always a joy to be with you. Hopefully, I'll get one more week with you guys before I go off to my next training. Uh, I'll be leaving probably somewhere in the 25th to the 27th range of February. Uh, going down to National Training Center in California, which I've done before. I'll be there about a month. Uh, three weeks this time without a uh, phone uh, to call home. And so, please, especially in those weeks, as much as I cover your prayers, be praying more for Lindsay and the kids, uh, and be ready to wrap them up as you normally do and care for them, just as you've always been so great at doing with all of our military couples. You want to go with Seth in class? She can stay here, too, if she wants Hi. So that's the plan. I'll be back toward the end of March and be back here for at least several more months. We'll probably leave somewhere around late June uh, to head out to North Carolina. Let me go ahead and start us with a word from Acts 17. Acts 17, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. You could say that about everybody. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, which we all have, I found also an altar with, an in, an in, with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And at that point he appeals to what they know of God. It's not complete. It's not sufficient. What they know does not save them. Really, it's only enough to condemn them, per Romans 1. But he recognizes that he can build upon those pieces of knowledge to make a case for the gospel. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and turn to our Lord in prayer. Lord, please bless this time together. Uh, as always, I am an insufficient uh, tool, but you are a sufficient Savior. Uh, my tongue will falter, our ears and our hearts will falter. Uh, we will often prove ourselves faithless, but you are faithful. And we're so grateful that we're not the heroes of this storyline. You are the hero. Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who, has, uh, who entered into human history, gave mankind hope, and gave the light of hope to each of our hearts as well. Please help us to meditate upon this great storyline, especially as we consider it in relation to those we seek to counsel and love and care for. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> you know, it's important that we hone in on what people know of the living God. First of all, is there anyone who is totally ignorant of God in this world? No. And yet I fear that sometimes we act as if that is so. So quick to critique the insufficiencies of worldviews, whether it be in uh, fellow believers or in unbelievers, always, ex always exposing the points that are not up to snuff. Not as much playing to what do people actually know. And this can make us really critical. Uh, at times just really nasty as we interact with others. Uh, people don't like heresy hounds, uh, but we can often uh, enter, that, enter that camp and be those type of people. But what are people getting right? 
I wonder sometimes, this is just me thinking out loud, if that's the reason why someone like C.S. Lewis became so popular and why another person I look up to a lot, who has had a, a lot of influence on in my own thinking, Cornelius Van Til, was not. Van Til was great at poking holes in people's thinking, at undermining their worldviews and showing why only a Christian worldview made sense. He, but he didn't appeal as much, I think constructively, positively, like C.S. Lewis did, to what people already know. Like Lewis say, all right, so you already have yearnings. Let's talk about yearnings and how that points to living God. Uh, you already have this conception of morality. And I think Lewis recognized, like we all do, those arguments are not going to save anybody. At the same time, it is helpful to not only expose the holes, the flaws in the worldview, uh, but all, to also show we're already they have an idea of who God is. Uh, and playing on that, think about how we engage culture at large, too. How often do we give our opponents, even those who are very hostile to us, the benefit of the doubt? Give them credit for what they do know to be true. That's actually right. That's good. That's true. That's beautiful. Uh, I think of debates on things like, uh, let me take one semi-controversial topic. Harry Potter. I love. I love Harry Potter. I just finished book five with Seth the other day. Are there plenty of flaws in the worldview of J.K. Rowling, the writer of Harry Potter? Absolutely. I mean, the thing is, most Christian writers, you'll be able to pick out those flaws in a few moments as well. Uh, even for Christian writing. At the same time, you ask, what did she get right? Hey, stop thumbing through my wallet, you little fiend. <laughs> uh, what did she get right? There are so many incredible glimpses of God's common grace in those books. And one of the things I love in literature is when you find those just enthralling, Christ-like characters coming from the minds of people who aren't even necessarily believers. Uh, in the past year, probably my favorite book of the past year, usually it's a modern book, uh, but I'm growing that muscle for older literature. And I've read A Tale of Two Cities for the first time. Wow, the Christ-like figures in that storyline are so compelling and riveting. Uh, it's so emotional. Uh, the way you see Christ represent these figures. Now, of course, you see that in, uh, in a storyline like Lord of the Rings. Uh, Phil Riken, uh talks about prophet, priest, and king in Lord of the Rings uh, being Gandalf, uh, Frodo, and Aragorn, representing prophet, priest, and king, kind of the Three, the threefold reign of Christ, rule of Christ, demonstrating those three figures. But Harry Potter, so often, you know, is the, is the use of witchcraft and wizardry in Harry Potter, like in Lord of the Rings, is this evil? Is this, you know, should we really be venerating people who are living this witchcraft wizard world? And yet, I'm not sure in any of these books I just mentioned, you see a more Christ-like figure especially at the very end of Harry Potter. Uh, most of these accounts, the Christ-like figure, when he seeks to go accomplish redemptive work, it's glorious. What do you do when you're called to sac you sacrifice yourself for the whole, when you realize that people's, in a sense, salvation depends upon you, but you've got to do so in a non-glorious way, when no one's looking, when you have to do it in the shadows, not saying farewell to anybody, not getting any credit, not riding off into the, you know, into the great final battle. You've got to do it alone. Even your staunchest adversaries, even those people who are most clearly confused, 
uh, you can play upon these truths that they know. You can celebrate the good things that they acknowledge, the good and the true and the beautiful. Will, did you get a haircut? <laughs> oh, sorry, that's ADHD. <laughs> Looks good, G.I. Joe. Uh, and so that's what I want to hone on a little bit more today. One of the things I love doing with my soldiers, what I love doing with people in the community when I was working at the church, let's celebrate those true things you know. Uh, let, let's give an example. When someone says, why would, why would God do this to me? Or why would a good God allow suffering? What can we immediately, typically we get defensive when we hear a question like that. And we either say, you just got to have faith. You know, we just apply to blind, appeal to a blind experience. Or we start making rational arguments for God and suffering. What can we immediately validate about their question? About their own comprehension of truth? What's that? Suffering is real. And everybody undergoes it. So they're recognizing, like, something is wrong. Something's broken. What else can we validate? Recognizing God is good. So you're presuming that if there is a God, he shouldn't be allowing this. Yeah, Charlie. Oh, the man has value, the dignity of mankind. Uh, and so we, we should naturally recoil when somebody is suffering. Uh, when we are suffering. Uh, so same thing, again, Let's not just talk in abstractions. Let's talk about someone's personal life. Uh, so if they're complaining, why would God allow this to happen to me in my life? They are assuming all these things, right? They look at creation. They look within their, own, within their own conscience, and they see the power and glory of God. But then they suppress that truth and unrighteousness, right? And you can see how hard people work at that. You guys understand, this truth speaks for itself and all people see it. Every day, they have to exert so much energy, intellectual, emotional, spiritual, to keep that truth under wraps. Man, it feels good when you point out, hey, there actually is truth there. And you start to try to release that uh, snuffing out of the truth a little bit. But I always talk about these bad examples. How about a good example? What if someone just really reveres, let's say a boy really reveres his mom for all the sacrifices she made growing up? We see this all the time, especially in our culture in which dads are largely absent. You know, graduation time or the bit, you know, you win the big game. Thank you, mom. Uh, what can we validate about what that that young man is saying. Honor your father and mother. And so in a sense, they're worthy of your honor. Uh, so you're recognizing that. What else? Yeah. Yeah, like somehow sacrifice is associated with love. Uh, somehow this is what you would expect from a parent, like maybe this is what parents were created for. The value of sacrifice, uh, that there's something incredibly profound about that, like there's something so noble about sacrifice that really transcends most, most anything else in this world. 
uh, that's, why do you think people celebrate soldiers so much? Soldiers are just as broken and messed up as anybody else in society. <laughs> in some cases, a lot more so. And yet, when a soldier lays down his or her life on the battlefield, like, there's something about that that moves us to tears. Even if they've had incredibly messed up life, even if they've got an incredibly murky character, there's something we celebrate about that. We can do that across uh, the range of key, let's say, biblical categories. Whether we're talking about creation, uh, the fall, whether we're talking about redemption, uh, the Christian life, you know, the meaningful life, uh, glorification, what this is all heading toward. In all these categories, people recognize certain truths. Are any of these truths sufficient to save them apart from the gospel? No. And that's something we've got to point out. But we can also celebrate what, we do, what they do know. That gives us point of appeals like, hey, buddy. You know, I did this the other night at a, at a chappy hour. Uh, one of my guys who's been a regular at Chappie over the past two years, he used to be one of my staunchest adversaries in the unit. Uh, naturally, he's from the South, and most of our guys from the South right now are the most antagonistic toward the gospel. And he's somebody who would always, whenever I would talk about anything gospel-related, would constantly push back. But he's become a regular at Chappie Hour. And one of the things I was pointing out to him is, you know, there's a reason you're at Chappie Hour. And... You know, you keep talking about how, you know, morality is relative, it's culturally relative, and yet you still have a very strong sense of morality. Uh, there's a, a lot of ways in which he already has certain categories in place, uh, just ultimately not meaningful because of the, he's missing the gospel. Uh, but I keep coming at him in that way. All across all the categories of Scripture, people recognize certain truths. And you want to celebrate that. And then build upon that. All right, buddy. You're, one of the points I make to him, you're not an atheist. You are not an atheist. Uh, you're skeptical. You're wrestling. Uh, you're not an atheist. Uh, you always already recognize certain things as true. Let's at least put you in the right category. And it's so helpful to be able to say, hey, we actually agree on a couple of these points. We're so used to just fighting people and immediately laying down the, the parameters of the faith and defending our faith. We're so used to just dividing ourselves in the various camps. Well, if we say, hey, here's a couple things we recognize together. And let's, let's discuss those things and build off them. So I'd like to talk a little bit today about the story of reality. So kind of thinking of the trajectory of Sunday school uh, up until now, We've talked about everybody's religious. You remember I quoted one of these mid-century psychologists, psychoanalysts, in that first lesson, who talked about, even though he was an atheistic Jew, he would talk about how we feel that, in essence, pull between paradise and the wilderness. Uh, He was using all these biblical categories to describe why mankind is, is is wrestling and is as torn as he is. Why? Because there's a reason for that. The only reason we can explain mankind in its current state is through Scripture. And then we've brought that through, and we've talked about exploring people's backgrounds, exposing their false identities, their idols, their false ideals. And then 
not only to expose them, but then to engage those things and show why what they have is not working. And last week, we got into these three problems, I think that really set the tone for switching over into a positive approach to the Christian faith, a positive presentation of it. Uh, What do you do with suffering? The problem of suffering. They always treat that as our problem. What we're pointing out is they've got no better alternatives. At least we have an explanation. You might not agree with the explanation, but at least we've got one that doesn't seem trite and dismissive about the problem of suffering or the problem of evil. The problem of feelings. Why do, you have, why do you show emotions over things? Uh, why do you grieve? Or for that matter, why do you express joy or delight over something? Why, by what right do we have to have any sort of response that implies that something is right or wrong? And we're not doing this in a C.S. Lewis way where we're appealing to reason. Or we're doing this by appealing to experience. Uh, experience is God-given as well. And then also the problem of brokenness. Uh, so things are clearly broken. Nowadays, you usually don't have to convince people of that. Uh, maybe 20th century you did when everybody was super you know, bright-eyed and optimistic. Not anymore. And we're using these things to show the, not only the insufficiency of their worldview, but the fact that already they have God-given, in a sense, detectors of truth. When you find a problem of suffering, well, that can point you to the gospel. A prob- that's a problem of feelings? Well, there's truth in your tears. Now, the problem of brokenness, okay. So now we realize the world is broken. Uh, that applies at some point it was whole, and we also know that we're part of the problem. We're also broken. We can't rebuild it. We can't recreate Eden. So now for a little more positive presentation of the gospel this week. Let's talk about the story of reality. I borrow this term, from, again, from Greg Kokel. I've quoted him a couple times. He's got two short books. Uh, one is called The Story of Reality, the term I just borrowed. And one is called Tactics. Tactics is a great, handy, useful manual for how to engage people. I love it because it's not just arguments to present. He's describing the back-and-forth conversations you have. Uh, how to disarm people if they're getting heated. Uh, how to kind of slow down the conversation if you feel like you're on the defensive. Um, how to use questions in an effective way. He actually leads an organization called Stand to Reason. If you ever listen to White Horse, then you'll hear him on there every once in a while. Where I think, and this is where I get myself in trouble, where he ultimately could do more work to put in a positive way, and the, well, the way in which he falls short, I'll just be negative about it for a second. I'm admiring everything he's taught me. For the same reason that Fiantil falls short, Lewis falls short, Sproul, Sproul falls short, uh, Zacharias falls short. I know this sounds incredibly haughty, and I don't mean it to be. Uh, the reason why all these guys are not connecting as well as, as they could with our contemporary culture, even Tim Keller, is because they're still appealing to reason. Uh, that, that's a school they were all trained in. But so with Coco, he has this book called The Story of Reality, in which he's showing that really... Christianity is the only thing that can explain this world as it actually is. But the whole time still, and as wonderful as this book is, he's still appealing to human reason. Uh, He's trying to make the proofs. It's still up here. It's still very cerebral. I think we can still make the same case, but in a more practical, personal, experiential sort of way. 
So let's talk about creation for a moment. Thank you, brother. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I get myself in trouble. Whenever I uh, critique any of our heroes, which these guys are all heroes uh, of the faith, uh, that's, that's the, the struggle there. Uh, no, we, with every single person, uh, we recognize their value. All those men I just mentioned are some of the most influential, profound, uh, persuasive thinkers of the 20th century. Uh, and I thank God for the role that they played in serving the church. Uh, we're simply talking about the paradigm shift. And this, that's going to consistently, we're going to keep coming back to that as one of the big tension points as we wrestle with these things. Because this is a huge paradigm shift. The same truths of God's word, the same truths about this world, but a different approach, which is pretty alien uh, to what all of us are raised with. So thank you. Creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What was that like in terms of lived experience for Adam and Eve? What was it like in that garden? Pretty nice? Yeah. Best of all possibilities. Uh, Practically speaking, what was the relationship with God like? Intimate. Happy and holy, yeah. Walk with them in the cool of the day as if God was their father. Can you imagine that? And we talk about it. We wrestle with that. Uh, I know Tim talks a lot about the fatherhood of God right now uh, and our adoption. But we, why do we wrestle so much with that? It is so foreign to our experience, even if you grew up in a relatively happy and holy home. It is so foreign. Imagine that intimacy with God, like your father, every day. How about between Adam and Eve? What was that like? Snapping at each other? Trying to wrestle with their responsibilities in the home? What was that like? What if I could just love my wife as she ought to be loved? What if I could always just feel that love for her? What if I could always just be lovable? Can you imagine that? Like, our wedding day, what does that compare? How does that, could that possibly compare to what, was that, to what that was like? Not for a second. That reunion that a soldier experiences when they come home, like that 20-second blip where everybody's happy before you realize that you have to merge your lives together again and gets incredibly messy for six months? Uh, the YouTube video part. Like, that's beautiful for 20 seconds. Still nothing uh, compared to Eden. Uh, how about the world around Adam and Eve? What would that have been like? The, the wind rustling in the trees? The trickling of the water? How full of life everything would be? Docile, uh, tame animals? Harmony? Harmony? Where you could just drink it all in. I, I love the Northwest for this reason. People have a greater appreciation and love for nature than a lot of other places. But like, what is a nature hike here compared to that? Where every part of that just seeped into your pores and enriched you. We are created to be loved by that Father and to love him in turn. Uh, to take our fellow man into our heart 
just love him entirely and be loved in turn, be known and fully known, uh, to just enjoy this creation, drink it in. Uh, and we have the capacity, our hearts have the capacity to enjoy all these things, not only to glorify God, but to enjoy him and all of his creation, every facet of it. Do people still feel a little bit of those tingles on occasion? Everybody. Not just believers. Everybody. When a Northwest hippie goes for a hike uh, and delights in nature, is there something incredibly profound and significant about that? Yeah. If we're talking with them and they're sharing their love of nature with us, can we affirm that? I... And again, as we talked about earlier, you know, when a, when a person grieves that their parents were always fighting, are they recognizing the loss of something precious in that original framework? The desire to love and be loved. When people say, uh, where is God in all this? Is there something incredibly profound in that statement? They're wondering because... God should not be distant in all this. They were created to walk in fellowship with God in the garden. And when they're saying, where is God? It's because they're missing God in the garden. And this is not just theoretical. This is in their day-to-day life. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, everybody nowadays knows brokenness. We don't have to convince them of depravity. Uh, one of the first things we can do with people as they're wrestling with depravity and the brokenness of this world is point them back to the beauty of creation. Again, as we keep talking about, they see the dark side of things, but we only call it broken because it was once whole. Let's point them back to that original beauty. I often ask soldiers, is this world... Uh, Broken or beautiful? Trick question. It's both. Are, are people, are yourself included, dignified like, or have a dignity, or are they depraved? It's both. Sinners or sufferers? Both. All these tensions encompass uh, really the, both the fall and the creation. So let's go to the fall for a second. So mankind transgressed by eating of the tree the knowledge of good and evil and falling, sinned against God and fell from him into an estate of sin and misery. It's tragic and it's traumatic. Immediately you see the effects of the fall. How do you see the effects of the fall? As soon as they, as soon as they ate, what happened? Lives are broken? Oh, their eyes were opened. All right. And so now they, they do have this knowledge of good and evil. And unfortunately now, where do they stand? What do they immediately do when they hear God? They feel the shame of their sin, a shame we've known ever since. Uh, how about their relationship toward one another? Yeah, that's broken too. Now that's sad, but that's often where we go to talk about the fall. But I think a passage that's just as helpful 
uh, is Genesis 4. I feel like we, we understand where the fall, how the fall happened. Like the story of how the fall occurred is Genesis 3. What it looks like is Genesis 4. It is so chilling, is it not? Cain and Abel? Cain in his self-righteousness does not render to God the sacrifices that he desires. And instead of responding in repentance and humility, his self-righteousness leads to anger, which is often where anger comes from. It's self-righteousness. Our pride is rarely not at issue uh, when it comes to anger. He's unable to strike down God, and so he strikes down the person nearest to him, his brother Abel. He kills his own brother. And then God comes and confronts him like this in a way that parallels his confrontation of Adam and Eve. Cain, where is your brother? And the gall here. Am I my brother's keeper? Man, to talk to God like that? And totally disavowing his brother in the process? Cain, your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. Again, what a vivid, vivid, vivid image. Your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. I often tell soldiers, as they recount to me their stories, your story cries up to God with the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cries out. It recoils at the horror of this world, the brokenness, the sin and suffering. It cries out for God to bring justice and shalom back to this world, to make all things right. In a sense, it testifies against us because we're part of the problem, right? The blood of Abel is a plea to God. Please do something about this. And the blood of Christ is the answer. It cries out to God with the answer. This is, what, this is how atonement is made. This is where satisfaction comes from. This is how the world is made whole once more. It's not hard to convince people to fall. When they talk about sin and suffering, man, can we relate? And we can point them to the fall, why this occurred. We have a storyline, a storyline that resonates with them. We can then talk about the story of Israel. This is one giant case study of a people who, if they simply did the right thing, could, in a sense, have earned, inherited, kept earthly paradise, in a sense, an earthly promised land. Their own relative righteousness could not even keep them in an earthly promised land, let alone earn them a heavenly one. All their lives could earn was exile from the presence of God and of his people. There's the story of mankind writ small. You think scripture turns a blind eye to the plight of humankind? I think not. I think no, no document in this world, no writing, better captures the human predicament. It showed that our only hope is for a new Adam, a new Israel to come and inherit that heavenly promised land for us. Until then, we live in tents and tabernacles. Book of Ecclesiastes. Let's try to reconstruct this broken world. Let's try to recreate Eden through pleasure, through power, through hard work. Was it ever successful? 
Meanless, meanless, vanity, vanity. The word used there is the same word for Abel. It's the word Hebel in the Hebrew. The same Hebrew word for Abel, which really was a personification, the person Abel, of that meaninglessness, that, that chaos, that vanity. Uh, so we can't rebuild. We, we can't recreate Eden. And all these things, we have clear stories that we can draw our friends to, whether believers or unbelievers, that share the story of sin and suffering with them, that shows, that puts it all in context within this greater storyline. Thank you, baby. The Siri doesn't belong to you. I. And then redemption. Then redemption. Why do we love stories of sacrifice? Why do we celebrate those moms who threw themselves into the nurture of their children when they could be off pursuing their professional dreams? And there's nothing wrong with those professional dreams. Uh, But mommy work is a thankless job. You're, whole, you're pouring yourself your whole, for all your kids' upbringings and to shaping these characters, trying to point them to Jesus. It's unending. Uh, and you don't get a reward for it. There's no like metric that you can quantify that in. Or the dad who works two jobs to provide for his, for his kids. Or nowadays, the parents who are often trying to do both. Like nowadays, all of us are trying to both be full-time workers in the workforce and full-time parents. Uh, thankless work. Why do we celebrate that? Why do we celebrate heroes who save other people? And again, this is not just the abstract. In our own lives, we celebrate these people. Uh, why do we want to do the same? You know, nothing breaks a soldier's heart like when he looks at his parents' failures and realizes he's repeating them. He just wanted to create the family. She just wanted to create the family that they didn't have growing up. And since they're the Jesus figure line in that story, but they realize that there's something so important about the rescue of people. But if we've adequately shown them the brokenness of this world in their own hearts, they recognize that the thing we most need saving for is from our, saving from is ourselves. Uh, again, I think I, I mentioned this to you guys before. One of the final pieces for me was recognizing I didn't just need to be delivered from my abusive household. Uh, I didn't need to have a reckoning with God. Rather, he didn't need to have a reckoning with me over the things my dad did during those years. I need to have a reckoning with him over my own sin. And I wasn't going to become a believer until that reckoning occurred. Uh, So again, in all these ways, the personal experience of those we relate to can be driven to the cross. Uh, next week, we will talk more about identity, uh, idols, ideals, the fact that the only, the only the Bible can properly put those in place as well. Only Jesus can. When you pass through the fires, I will be with you. The flames will not consi- consume you. When you pass through the waters, uh, uh, I will be with you. The waves will not overcome you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel your Savior. Uh, I am the Lord. You are mine. 
You are mine. What a great identity. And with that identity um, rooted in God, we can, be, we can pass through the fires and the waters. So we'll talk about identity. We'll talk about idols. My only hope today was to get you started, line, started in on how the storyline of Scripture, now that we've done all, this, all the rest of spade work, is so incredibly appealing and compelling to those we interact with. It's no longer just showing proof text at people, but all of a sudden, you're showing how their broken storylines can be woven up into the biblical storyline. And that only that biblical storyline, I'm not talking about it, not only that the biblical storyline makes sense of their life, only the biblical storyline gives meaning to their tears, purpose to their pain, hope to their hearts. Very experiential. But I'm going to stop there. So normally, so our ending point potentially is 1045. So if there's a couple of questions. Uh, feel free to throw them out now. Does all this make sense to you guys? Yes, Charlie. Yeah. I'd say more emotional appeals, even though, na- especially in our circles nowadays, like emotional appeal still sounds very suspect because it sounds like you know we're just appealing to felt needs. Uh, we are we're appealing to. I would like to be detached in a sense emotion from experience. Yes, we do appeal to their tears and show what they tell us about the fall. Uh, what they're actually longing for. But even then, as we appeal to their emotion in that particular case, we're pointing them back to baseline fact. Uh, And the same with experience. It could be shared experience. It's wonderful when we have that. But I don't want to discourage any of you who don't have, say, the broken background, the visibly, tangibly broken background from relating to the person with that background. You can still appeal to their experience and how it reflects reality and can drive them to the gospel. Yeah, Charlie, and then I'll kick it over to you, Marcus. Yeah. 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 Yeah, you know, it's, we've got, we got to be careful because we don't need salvation fundamentally from our suffering, right? That I had to realize that that was one of the big hurdles for me in coming to know the, know the Lord. It's so we can't just leave people and talking about suffering. But what does suffering tell us about the world at large? And we draw that out, and especially their inability to recreate Eden, their inability to put together the pieces themselves. And pretty quickly, we're talking about human inability, and pretty quickly, we're going from there to sinfulness, that we are part of the problem. And so suffering's never an end in itself, and we can't simply jump from suffering to the cross. Uh, Jesus did suffer, and he's a sympathetic high priest, but he did so for our sin. And so we've got to drive that point home. It's so suffering should always, in a sense, lead us to sin, if that connects those dots a little bit. Yeah, Marcus. So, um, do you find stories of heroism and uh, sacrifice so appealing? Why is it that the gospel is so offensive? 
Uh, that's a great question. Uh, why would you say it's so offensive, Marcus? Yeah, I think that's a good answer. Uh, the cross provides a mirror upon our sin. Uh, no one likes to hear. That's why you can't claim Christianity is an opiate for the masses or a crutch for the weak. Nobody, nobody wants to hear that someone had to die because you are so messed up. Like, when soldiers die for us, like, we, we applaud their service. You know, thank you for preserving America, the greatest experiment in human history and liberty in a geographical and historical sea of tyranny. Uh, you're preserving something great and beautiful. What, what, if sacrifice, what if someone has to be sacrificed because you're anything but that? Like, you're an absolute train wreck. You're not neutral. You're not decent. You're not just hurting. You haven't just suffered. No, you're one of the faces in the crowd that said, crucify him. That's what your free will cries out for. Uh, you are like Cain, uh, where you want to strike out it against God and instead draw the blow down upon whoever you can reach, whether it be, whether it be Abel or Jesus Christ or anybody else in your path. Uh, I came for the sick, not the healthy. The sinners, not the righteous. What's that? You talk about Jesus? Yeah, and again, this, our thought through the issue deeply in terms of why we venerate soldiers in this way, but I think part of it has to do, we appreciate their sacrifice, and that's, that resonates with us, and that can point us to the cross, and yet at the same time, uh, we also think we're worth protecting and we're worth preserving. And we should. This is a, this is a wonderful country. Uh, hopefully I would think that as a soldier. Uh, the gospel is offensive. It says you're not worth saving. But God, obviously, out of his eternal love, uh, saves you out of his eternal love, and for that reason alone, for his own glory alone. That's why it's offensive. And so using the example of other sacrifices can point us in the direction of the gospel, uh, but the fact is it's still going to meet that barrier. Uh, it's always going to come down in the end, in the end to the Holy, Spirit's, Holy Spirit testifying to our hearts, yeah, it's true. You, you can't do it. You're broken, and you need the gospel. Yeah, Pastor Brett. I realize time's short, but uh, the, one, the one part of reality's story that he didn't get into is consummation. Yeah. And it seems like there would be something to tie into the people who want to let down. I don't know if you would Yeah. So that was originally part of that line. That's kind of short. Uh, yeah, absolutely. We all long for the happily ever after. The blood of Abel cries out for this. The blood of Jesus now testifies that, you know, it's already inaugurated. It's already started. And someday it's going to be fulfilled in its entirety. And it's just so beautiful. This is why we need to stop just making arguments from Scripture, like it's just a collection of logical arguments, and paint the storyline for people. It starts in a garden. We now live in the wilderness, and we feel the wilderness in our bones, but we still long for the garden. We're a Genesis 3 people longing for a Genesis 1 world. Guess what? We're going to have a Revelation 22 world. 
there will be a day when he comes back for our tears. And already, because Jesus has come once, there's blooms and blossoms being planted in the wilderness. We can see that growth, especially in the context of the church. But one day those tears will be wiped away. What else offers us that hope? What else, what else validates your tears says, and your brokenness and says where it comes from, gives a storyline for it, says what God has done for it, and where this is all heading? Nothing. In each of those categories, it is Christian and Christian alone that gives us not just a satisfactory explanation, but a compelling picture of this world before God. Uh, life uh, not, under, not under the sun. Uh, life in its entirety. Uh, I'm going to stop there, Charlie. I know you had another question, too. We can talk about that offline. And again, if you have any questions for me, please, or any feedback, let me know. Let me say a word of prayer for us. Father, we're so grateful that our individual storylines have been woven into the greater tapestry of your redemptive plan for your people throughout all of history. It's breathtaking. We are part of that same storyline that began in the garden, that same storyline uh, that will be brought into the new heavens, new earth, where life doesn't end. Life there is surely just beginning. Eternity is written upon our hearts as it is upon the hearts of all men. And yet for most, most of them, the knowledge they have is merely enough to condemn. Our hearts have been unshackled, unchained. We have been set free. Our hearts now burn at your truth. Not burn at the, burn, they don't burn at the weight of your condemnation. They burn to know, to love, to grow in the name of Jesus by the power of your spirit. Because you have set us free. For freedom you have set us free. We are free from the guilt of our sin. We are free from vainly trying to recreate Eden. We are free from the despair that the world around us can create. We are free from false identities, from idols, from false ideals. We're plugged into a storyline that brings color to this black and white world, that shades our every bit of life with meaning. Even when our life involves incredible suffering and continued struggle with the power of sin, we see your hand at work. You work in us to will and work according to your good pleasure. You are the author and perfecter of our faith. The blood of your son, Jesus, speaks a better word than that of Abel, and it ever speaks on our behalf. And Lord, now we come before you in this next great apocalyptic battle as Satan seeks to distract us and deter us from hearing, understanding, perceiving your word as it is preached to us by Pastor Brian. Lord, please cut right to the quick of our hearts by your Spirit's power. Divide bone from marrow. Convict us of our sin. Comfort us in the gospel. Teach us by your word how not to sin against you and also how we might grow and spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And all the more as we see that great day approaching, that day when every tear will be wiped from our eyes. Even if we are showing depression today, anxiety, anger, Flood our hearts with joy, not a naive joy, but a joy that comes only from the gospel.
from Jesus, our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.